It is, in fact, the truth that none but Jesus can do. In your Bibles to the book of Judges, Lord willing, we will be back in Matthew next week. Judges chapter 10. Starting in verse 6 of Judges chapter 10. This is the word of the Lord. It has no errors in it, in the original languages in which it was given, and it remains, uh, in faithful translations of the original, it remains to us the authoritative word of God. Listen reverently as I read to you. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. And they afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year, For eighteen years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Galilee in the land of the Amorites. And the sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines? Also, when the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. And the sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to thee. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them, and served the Lord, and he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Then the sons of Ammon were summoned, and they camped in Gilead, and the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived 
in the land of Tov. And worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. And it came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. And it happened when the sons of Ammon fought against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tov. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our chief, that we might fight against the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah said to the leaders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you are in trouble? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Be seated, please, and join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that it is profitable uh, to all who read it and particularly hear it preached. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would be our preacher this day, that you would speak to those who, uh, who are listening, who are your children already, and Lord, that you would speak to those who are listening who are not truly yours, who have not uh, fled to you, Lord Jesus, in faith as their only hope. And would you bless all of us um, through this passage according to our needs and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, um, have you ever had this happen to you where you were in a conversation perhaps with uh, one, of your, uh, one of your friends, maybe not in your family, but another friend, or perhaps it was even with an, an adult uh, to whom you were talking, but have you ever in the midst of talking to somebody pretended to be someone that you're not? Now by that I mean not that you're a different person entirely, but that you're, you're telling the person something about yourself or trying to um, get the person you're talking to to see you differently than you really are. I'll give you an example of this from my own life. Uh, during my first year in public school, it's called kindergarten, a few children uh, who are homeschooled have never heard that term. It's the first year. I was five years old. And in my kindergarten class, we, I think it was each day, maybe it was only once a week, I can't remember which, but we regularly had this thing that my teacher called show and tell. And that was, we would take time out from our, uh, from other things we were doing, we would gather around in a circle, and the teacher would say, does anybody have anything they'd like to show us, the class, or anything you'd like to tell us about something you, that's gone on in your life? Um, and really what it was for me was an opportunity to brag um, and uh, an opportunity to lie. I was not a believer back then, uh, and I didn't uh, have a problem, uh, at least enough of a problem, with lying not to do it. And so in these show-and-tell times, I would regularly tell 
things about myself, stories about myself that were not true. I lied to people when I was a little boy. I was trying to fool them into thinking I was a person that I wasn't. I didn't have a pet squirrel that came up to me and that I fed. I remember that one story. Um, I lied about a squirrel that I saw in the yard, and I came up and fed him, and he jumped on my shoulder, I think, and we were friends forever. Uh, it was, like, ridiculous. And, of course, my teacher knew I was lying, but she didn't, uh, she didn't say, Mark, that's not true. She should have, but she didn't. Trying to spare me humiliation, uh, humiliation, I guess. At any rate, I did that as a little child, and perhaps you've done that. It's a sin, by the way. But you know what? Lots of people who go to church in this country and indeed around the world who show up on Sunday mornings um, uh, do the same thing. They, they try to fool others around them as to who they really are inside, and they even try to fool God. And it's wicked. It's wicked. This passage is about the people of Israel who were claiming to love the Lord, Yahweh, or Jehovah. Yahweh is a better uh, guess than Jehovah is, uh, of God's name. But they were claiming to love God and indeed claiming to be trusting in God's deliverer, who the Old Testament had promised from uh, the garden onward, who would be the Lord Jesus, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, who had not yet come yet. This is about... um, it's about 1,400 years before Jesus, 1,300, 12 to 1,300 years before Jesus uh, was born. Um, but the people of Israel in this day, most of them, it appears, were lying about themselves to others and certainly to God. We're going to look more at the problems with that and what God did with these people. First, for a very quick overview of the book of Judges, the book covers a period of about 350 to perhaps 400 years between the conquest of Canaan uh, through with Joshua uh, and the establishment of the Israelite monarchy under David. So it's that, that period between the conquest of the land and the beginning of the uh, monarchy under David. And the book of Judges, uh, by the way, the book of Ruth takes place during this time, so this helps inform us of what was going on in Ruth's day. But the book of Judges recounts a particularly sad and pathetic and embarrassing period in Israel's history. There were lots of periods like that, but this was particularly awful. Um, And it documents, the book does, seven cycles of rebellion and sin against God by his covenant people, the Israelites and and proselytes that might have uh, joined with Israel, Gentiles who became Israelites, if you will, uh, by circumcision. And it documents these seven cycles. And the Old Testament church, and that's what God's covenant people are, the Old Testament church's spiritual temperature, I'll call it, uh, grew progressively colder as we go through these seven cycles of sin that are described in the book of Judges. And the passage we're looking at today in Judges 10 describes one of the latter periods of apostasy, that is, of turning away from God, uh, one of the seven periods. And there are two major truths that are evident in this passage. It's important to 
Keep these in your head as I as I progress through uh, the sermon. The first is this, and I'll explain it in a minute because it sounds like I'm making two opposite points, but I'm not really. First is this, the covenant of grace compels God to punish certain ones who flagrantly violate the terms of this covenant. The covenant of grace compels God to punish certain ones who flagrantly violate the terms of this covenant. And secondly, the second point we're going to look at is the covenant of grace compels God to take pity upon certain ones who flagrantly violate the terms of this covenant. So first, the covenant of grace compels God to punish certain ones who flagrantly violate the terms of this covenant, meaning the covenant of grace, interestingly. I want to talk about covenants for a second, what the scriptures teach on the subject, because this will inform the rest of what I'm about to say. God has always, and I mean always, dealt with mankind on the basis of covenants. You could call them contracts, although that's kind of misleading, actually. Um, Let me explain. Uh, These covenants, or these agreements, are not the kind in which, so these agreements that God has made, these covenants between God and mankind, um, they're not the kind in which two equal parties mutually agree upon something after having negotiated the terms between themselves. I think you'll all agree with me that God and we are not on the same plane. Uh, God is infinitely greater than we are. We are not equals with God, and we uh, do not negotiate with God ever, by the way. Um, divinely, divine human covenants are sovereignly imposed. It's gracious, but it's imposed by God upon mankind. And there are, are essentially only two covenants that God has ever made with mankind. Now, there's, there are uh, administrations of the second covenant that I'm going to mention, but there are essentially only two. The first is called the covenant, or often called by, especially in Reformed circles, the covenant of works. And the second is called the covenant of grace. A works covenant and a grace covenant. The, work, the covenant of works was made with Adam as the representative of all humanity that was going to descend from Adam. Except one, Jesus. But Adam's behavior uh, was, represent, uh, was going to represent and affect all of humanity that descended from him except Jesus. The covenant of grace was made not with Adam, but with the second Adam with Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, God incarnate, as, and it was made with him as representative of all those whom God wished to save, down through human history, otherwise known as the elect. Those are the two covenants. One with Jesus as the head, and one with Adam as the head. Let me read to you. Uh, we don't often read... Uh, all that often read from the larger catechism uh, in our uh, in, in my sermons, but I'm going to take time to read uh, three of the questions from the larger catechism. That listen carefully to this. This is fantastic language here in terms of describing what's going on, uh, having to do with covenants. So the first is uh, larger, larger catechism 
question 30, and then I'll read 31, and then finally I'll end with 32. Uh, listen to these. And if you have it uh, with you, uh, then please follow along. Question 30. Does God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery, meaning after mankind has fallen? And the answer that the divines gave is this. God does not leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery, into which they fell by the breach of the first covenant, that is to say the covenant of works, commonly called the covenant of works, there it is, but of his mere love and mercy delivers his elect out of it and brings them into an estate of salvation by the second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace. Question 31. With whom was the covenant of grace made? Answer. The covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam and in him with all the elect as his seed. It was made with Christ as the second Adam and in him with all the elect as his seed. And then question 32. And listen carefully to this. How is the grace of God manifested in the second covenant? The covenant of grace. The grace of God is manifested in the second covenant in that he freely provides and offers to sinners a mediator and life and salvation by him. And requiring faith as the condition to interest them in him promises and gives his Holy Spirit to all his elect to work in them that faith with all other saving graces and to enable them unto all holy obedience as the evidence of the truth of their faith and thankfulness to God and as the way which he has appointed them to salvation. Okay? Notice in that last question, answer that I read to question 32, that the covenant of grace is conditional. It is, he says, and requires faith as the condition. God requires faith as the condition to interest them, meaning his elect, in him, meaning in Christ. It is a conditional covenant in one sense, very important sense. I'll say more about that in a few moments, but uh, that is some excellent uh, biblical instruction on uh, God's covenants made with man. So, what is man's duty under the covenant of grace? What is the the condition that is required um, uh, under the covenant of grace? Well, as we just read in uh, Larger Catechism 32, faith is the condition, or trust, Faith in the messianic mediator or redeemer whom God has appointed to save sinners from the divine wrath that their sins deserve under the covenant of works. Right? But notice this, as I already pointed out to you, this faith that is a condition of the covenant of grace, faith that we will have in Jesus, must have in Jesus, this faith is a faith that will evidence itself in a true believer's life from uh, will evidence itself by ongoing striving after holiness on that person's part. 
Holy obedience is the, is the phrase that is used in uh, question 32 of the larger catechism. Holy obedience will be present in the true believer. And it will be, in other words, a striving after obedience uh, or holiness. Such efforts or uh, strivings to conform oneself to the moral image of Christ, and that's what sanctification is, being increasingly conformed to the moral image of Christ, such efforts must and will be present in the true Christian from his conversion onward throughout his life. Now, there'll be fits and starts, there'll be ups and downs, but the, as I say, the general trajectory will be striving after holiness. Um, imperfect, though, that striving and those efforts will be. No one will get to heaven without such strivings, without such efforts to obey God's will. In other words, sanctification necessarily follows on justification. If you're justified, if you have been declared righteous by God by uh, faith, uh, because of your faith in Christ and, and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to you, you will strive and desire to be Christ-like in your life as a thank offering, I'll call it that, to God for what he has done for you in Christ. Now, how does a professing Christian violate his obligations under this covenant? Remember I said the covenant of grace compels God to punish certain ones who flagrantly violate the terms of that covenant. How does that happen? The answer, by doing what Israel did on this occasion. Israel, uh, uh, verse 6 of Judges 10, forsook the Lord and did not serve him. That is to say, they knowingly abandoned Yahweh as their God, in effect. Now, this doesn't mean they said, we repudiate you. But by their actions, that is what they did. The vast majority of the people that are described here in this passage. They turned their backs on the one who had rescued them as a people from their bondage in Egypt, who had provided all that they needed in the wilderness, who had gone before them into battle and they were fighting against the Canaanites. They turned their backs on the one who, uh, to whom they were covenantally bound and to whom they had sworn their allegiance. They refused to worship and serve him any longer in any meaningful way. And thereby, they unilaterally abrogated their solemn obligations under the covenant. Each man did what was good, or what was pleasing. How does it go? I can't believe I'm forgetting that line. It's the uh, last uh, verse in Judges. Each man did what was right in his own eyes. That's it. Each man did what was right in his own eyes, which is to say evil, rather than doing what was right in God's eyes. And by doing so, they unilaterally abrogated their obligations. They jumped headlong. What did they do? They jumped headlong into the worship of other gods, specifically the detestable pseudo-gods of the Canaanites and of other nations surrounding Israel. They worshipped Baal, uh, the high god of the Canaanite pantheon, who was the god of fertility and rain, who was worshipped by orgies, by the way, in their temples. Uh, and Ashtaroth, 
his uh, Baal's consort. They worshipped Moloch, the god of the Ammonites, Chemosh, the god of the uh, Moabites. Uh, and they did it in not just in this uh, by sexual sin, but also by human sacrifice. And a large majority, it appears from this passage, of God's covenant people, the church of the Old Testament, a large majority of that church willfully engaged in such treachery as just, I just described in violation of their covenant commitments, commitment to the Lord. By their actions, they demonstrated that they were only parties to the covenant of grace in an external or outward way not in an internal, uh, living way. They were actually, internally, still represented by Adam under the covenant of grace. Oh, excuse me, works. can't believe I just said that. Under the covenant of works. They were not represented by the future coming Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, under the covenant of grace. They were covenant breakers of a particularly flagrant sort. Well, what happens when God's covenant, covenant people who are uh, in the covenant community, what happens when we flagrantly violate our obligations under the covenant of grace? Same thing that happened in the day described here in Judges 10. God's anger burns against us as it did in the case of of Israel of old. And the anger of the Lord, verse 7, burned against Israel. Against Israel. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. Imagine how terrifying it would be to have God have a statement where it says that God, the anger of the Lord burns against you. Think of that should ter- the thought of that should terrify you should terrify anyone. And yet, all unbelievers, that's the case. If you're not in Christ, God's anger burns against you. There are probably many members in good standing of evangelical and even Reformed churches in our land today about whom this could be said, that God's anger burns against them. God's anger does indeed burn against covenant breakers. And God punished Israel's covenant uh, breaking, his, their apostasy. As, we just, as I just read, uh, he did this by permitting Israel's, uh, the Israelites living east of the Jordan River in Gilead to fall into the hands of their enemies, uh, the Philistines. Uh, and, and uh, excuse me, the Ammonites, but also it mentions the Philistines. Apparently, they were on the uh, afflicting the folks on the uh, other on the west side of the Jordan. And by the way, the Ammonites also attacked the Israelites living west of the Jordan as well. So enemies on both sides pressing Israel, pressing in on Israel. Uh, the Ammonites, particularly on the east, and the Philistines on the west, because of where they lived. And Israel's Israel's suffering at the hands. Uh, of these enemies continued for 18 years, the text tells us, before they finally came to their senses. But then, even that was only a partial coming to their senses. Well, why does the covenant of grace compel 
God to punish those who flagrantly violate their obligations under that covenant. Why is it? The reason is this, and I alluded to it earlier, as did the larger catechism, because God includes threats of punishment for covenant breaking, flagrant covenant breaking, and perpetual covenant breaking. He includes threats of punishment for covenant breaking as well as promises of blessing blessing for covenant keeping. Promised temporal curses for covenant breaking are found in Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 and following. I won't read that for you. Uh, You can read it yourself, but it's found in Deuteronomy 28. Those were uh, particularly applied to uh, Israel, uh, but but by extension it would apply to a covenant breaker today, even though we no longer live in a theocracy. Uh, And promised spiritual curses are found in the book of Hebrews and 2 Peter. And I am going to take just a little bit of time to read a few illustrative examples of this. I would encourage you to turn with me. Um, Many of these are fairly well known, but Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, we read this. Remember, this is describing covenant breaking by people who profess to believe uh, in God and in Jesus, uh, but who are acting in a way that is contrary to their profession. Uh, Starting in verse 4, of Hebrews 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, this isn't in, to a saving degree now, but in some sense that is true. Um, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, read apostasy, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they are since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Then turn over to Hebrews chapter ten, verses twenty six through twenty nine. Uh, similarly, we read ten twenty six. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Notice if we go on. Uh, sinning willfully. Go on sinning willfully. Uh, After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean? the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. And then over in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, we read this. He's talking now about people who, um, uh, covenant breakers. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow 
after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Those passages all describe covenant breaking. Now, let me make this clear. These passages do not teach that somebody who is genuinely saved, I should say genuinely justified, which is the, the kernel, the central kernel of salvation, uh, it does not say these passages are not teaching that somebody can lose their salvation who has truly been justified by God uh, through faith in Christ. But it is talking about people who were, who claimed to be Christians, who were in the church, who had been baptized, who were going through the motions, who were coming to church and uh, pretending to worship God when in fact they hated him and his uh, Redeemer. So that is why the covenant of grace compels God to punish, because he has said, I will punish those who claim to love me, I'm paraphrasing now, but don't, and have shown that they don't love me, they aren't trusting in my son by their actions. And God is a God who keeps his word. Uh, There are many passages that could be adduced to uh, make that point, but one of them is Psalm 89, verse 34, which reads, God speaking now, My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. God will not violate his covenant. And he has said there are curses for covenant breaking and there are blessings for covenant keeping. And the true Christian will, will imperfectly, but will truly keep covenant from his uh, conversion onward uh, through the end of his life. You and I need to be serious about sanctification. This doesn't mean it's part of what makes us right with God, but those who are right with God must be conformed to the image of Christ increasingly. And if there's no desire for that, if there's no evidence of that, you are not a Christian regardless of what this church says or what you say. And you need to repent of your love of sin and your idolatry and your rebellion against God. And you need to flee to his son, who is the only redeemer, the only uh, mediator between God and man who can save you from the hell that we all deserve. Flee to Christ if you have not. Secondly and briefly, briefly, The covenant of grace not only compels God to punish certain ones who flagrantly violate the terms of that covenant, the covenant of grace compels God also to take pity upon certain ones who flagrantly violate the terms of that covenant. And that occurs if and when those uh, covenant breakers sincerely repent of their covenant breaking. They sincerely repent of their rebellion against God, of their pretensions to love him and to be trusting in his uh, son. After 18 years of being sorely oppressed by their pagan neighbors, the Israelites made an attempt, half-hearted, at repentance. You may notice the way I read the the passage, uh, how I read it. Verse 10, Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. That was a kind of a throwing a bone to God, if you will, on their part. It was not. It was disingenuous. Um, it's obvious that it was disingenuous from God's response to it. Um, 
He said, no. you got all these other gods. Go to them for deliverance. You've been serving them. Go to them. They'll deliver you. Or, you know, see if they deliver you. Their, no, their repentance at, at verse 10 was only superficial. It was only outward and it lacked genuine sorrow for their sins and a desire for obedience, which always accompanies true repentance. And God, therefore, rejects their pseudo-apology and refuses to deliver them, as we read in verses 11 through 14. And I won't bother to read it now, but you can. It is only after God sees some evidence of genuine repentance among his people, his covenant people, that he decides to act favorably on their behalf. They, and what was that evidence? Well, as we read in verse 15, they acknowledged that God had a right to do with them whatever he wanted to. Thus implying, by saying that, I'll read the words again, and the sons of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned, do to us whatever seems good to thee. By saying that to the Lord, it's implying that they understood that they had no grounds for objecting to God's continuing to punish them through their neighbors. They had no grounds, and they realized it finally. It dawned on them. We deserve this wrath that we're getting from God. So they acknowledged that God had a right to do that to them ongoingly and not give them the mercy they were asking for. And then they began to do what God demanded that they do all along. And that was get rid of their idols and begin serving him uh, truly and in a heartfelt way. And once they started doing this, how did God respond? He responded with mercy. As far as I'm concerned, verse 16 uh, contains one of the most touching verses in the Old Testament scriptures. It's one of my favorite verses. Um, even though the Israelites richly... Oh, I'll read the verse, I'm sorry. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Think of what they'd done to him. They were, they were spiritual prostitutes. All of them. Well, all that were doing that. Of course, there, were some faithful, uh, there was a faithful remnant that was left. But the vast majority of them were apparently spiritual prostitutes. And yet, the Lord says, he could bear their misery no longer. They richly deserved to have their pleas for mercy ignored and their suffering that, and to have their suffering continue uh, indefinitely, and yet God couldn't bear to watch his covenant people, wayward, horribly wayward though they were, couldn't bear to watch them suffer any longer. So he takes pity on them. He does this by raising up another judge, Jephthah, who was not a very noble man, as we read. I'm not going to reread that passage. But he raised up Jephthah to deliver those Israelites who repented from, um, who were victims of the Ammonites uh, in Gilead, he delivered them from the Ammonites through Jephthah and through his, uh, his being raised up to be their head and their chief and their judge. God took pity upon his church of old 
And in some sense, and I say this guardedly, but I think it can be stated truly, in some sense, God was compelled to do so by the covenant of grace that he had made with them. How so? How is it that this covenant of grace compels God to take pity on those who have flagrantly violated their covenant commitments under that covenant that God had made with them? And the reason is, again, because it's a conditional covenant. In one sense. There's another sense in which it's unconditional because it applies to Christ. Uh, but there's another sense in its outworking of the covenant in the world, it is conditional. It is a conditional covenant that promises mercy and forgiveness to all who will repent of their sinful rebellion against the Lord and put their complete trust in the Lord's anointed, the one whom he has appointed to be Savior of all sinners who he will forgive, Jesus. And this promise of reconciliation and forgiveness with God even applies to those who had previously been in covenant with him in a merely external way, but were in rebellion against him. And this is exactly what at least a sizable percentage, we have no idea how many, but a sizable percentage of these Israelites did. Now, not all of them, certainly, but probably the majority. They humbled themselves before the Lord. They repudiated the false gods that had been, they had been serving and repented of the wicked deeds that were associated with the worship of those false gods. And they began serving Yahweh and trusting Again, I think this, I think we can read this, uh, we can surmise this from, uh, the, their change of heart. Uh, they began, many did, trusting in the promised deliverer who would deliver them from the punishment which they deserved. Now, the proximate, the proximate deliverer was Jephthah. They put their hope in Jephthah in one sense. But like all the judges, to a certain extent, Jephthah was a type of Christ, a type of the Messiah to come. And the deliverance which he and other judges who were very imperfect, Jephthah as we read, very imperfect man, but the deliverance which he as a judge and a type of Christ achieved for ancient Israel from their physical oppression, that deliverance pointed the same Israelites to the deliverance from the power and penalty of sin that the Messiah, the true and final judge, would one day achieve for all those who put their trust in him. Let me read. I won't read it for the sake of time. Read Luke chapter 1, verses 70, 67 to 75. Luke 1, 67 to 75. Don't read it now, but read it later. And it shows you that um, that uh, how the deliverances of Egypt, uh, of Israel, the temporal deliverances of Israel pointed to spiritual deliverance. So, while they were putting their trust in Yahweh uh, to rescue, ultimately in Yahweh, to rescue them from the physical oppression through the person of Jephthah, many of them, presumably, were at the same time putting their trust in Yahweh and his anointed Messiah. 
to rescue them from the spiritual oppression they had brought on themselves by their own rebellion. Now, there are scads of people in our churches today who are only parties to the covenant of grace in an external, outward, non-living way. By church, uh, churches, I'm talking about of all different denominational stripes and non-denominational churches and whatnot. True churches, by the way, uh, that I'm talking about, those that actually have the gospel in them, uh, uh, preach to some degree. But there are scads of people even in those evangelical churches and reformed churches who are only external parties to the covenant of grace. They're parties because they've made a profession and they've been baptized. Or in the case of covenant children, they've been baptized. And that makes them uh, parties, external party to the covenant of grace. And by means of their affiliation with a Christian church body, they are professing to know God and to be believers in Christ. But the worldly way in which they are living belies their profession. Now, maybe their church leaders don't see the ungodly sins that they are practicing. In fact, maybe the other members of their church and other people around them don't see the way in which they are defying God and living devilishly. But you know God sees. Their habitually rebellious and disobedient behavior and lack of repentance for that behavior, because we can all be disobedient and rebellious at times, believers I'm talking about, Christians, but we repent of it. If you're truly a Christian, you, you come to your senses and you go, oh my, what am I doing? Why am I acting this way? Forgive me, Lord. But the non-Christian doesn't repent. He just keeps right on doing it and perhaps hiding it from everybody else, except God. But by doing so, especially for those who are in a church and who are professing a Christian faith, uh, a Christian allegiance, they, uh, that is a flagrant violation of their obligations under the covenant of grace. And it proves that their profession to love God and be trusting in Jesus is a sham. They are, in fact, covenant breakers who are inwardly still being represented by Adam in the covenant of works. And guess what? That's a bad thing. Because all of us have broken the covenant of works. Adam was perfect. He could have, he could have secured his eternal uh, um, um, uh, felicity with God. or That's a fancy word, sorry. His eternal uh, blessedness with God. Had he obeyed. He had the power, unlike us, to obey God. And he violated that covenant when he ate of the uh, forbidden fruit and plunged all of us into death and darkness in that covenant. Unless we are extracted from having Adam as our representative in the covenant of works, we are all doomed to eternal destruction. Through our representative Adam in the covenant of works and people who are in the church who are baptized and say, oh, I love Jesus and who are living profligate lives are under that covenant of works. And they have failed to keep it. And they are careening towards hell. Perhaps I have just described someone listening to me today, either in this room or online. A pretender 
who is a member of the visible church, the external covenant community, we'll call it, but who has no part in the invisible church, in the church where there is a vital relationship with Jesus through faith in him alone. Because you are not savingly united to Jesus as your representative under the covenant of grace. And the horribly bad news, I've already mentioned it to you, is that you're on the road to hell. And you will certainly go there. Unless you flee to Christ. Truly flee to Christ in faith. God is enormously gracious. That is the good news. Yes, he's just, and yes, he punishes those uh, who, uh, who uh, flagrantly violate, who violate his laws at all, and don't come to Christ for forgiveness of those sins. But he also is gracious to forgive those who will repent and flee to Jesus in faith and faith alone. He is willing, indeed, he is eager to forgive, to save, to reconcile sinners like you, if I'm describing you here, who have so horribly offended him by pretending, as I said to the children at the beginning of the service, trying to fool God and fool others, that you somehow love God and don't. If you are genuinely sorry for your rebellion against God and your sham profession and you understand that you desperately need Jesus who was God was and is God and man as the confession catechism puts it in two distinct person in two distinct natures in one person forever I'll get it eventually If you put your trust in him, see your desperate need for him, and are willing to surrender to Jesus as your Savior, the one who saves you, and as your King, the one whom you will serve for the rest of your life, it is not too late for you to escape God's wrath under the covenant of works that you are now under. God is still willing, still offers you forgiveness, but it's only in Union with Christ, which occurs by faith alone. Let me close with this verse that makes that point eloquently. First, excuse me, Isaiah 31, verses 6 and 7, where we read these wonderful words. Return to him from whom you have deeply defected, O sons of Israel. So covenant, people that are in covenant. His commandment is, return to him from whom you have deeply defected, O sons of Israel. For in that day, every man will cast away his silver idols and his gold idols, which your hands have made as a sin. In that day when you uh, return to him, in other words. You will respond by heartfelt return by casting away your idols. And by the way, we don't, almost none of us have ever bowed down to a piece, I imagine none of us have ever bowed down to a piece of gold or wood or silver. Our idols today are more subtle. There are careers. There are uh, a significant other in our life that we idolize, literally idolize. Perhaps it's a wife or a husband or a girlfriend or a child even. 
uh, other forms of idolatry, uh, being being uh, uh, addicted to being entertained by because you because of your love of the computer and all the things that you get to see on that computer or your cell phone. These are modern day idols, you see. And they are idols that will land you in hell if you keep serving them. You need Christ. You need to serve and trust Him. May God give you the grace to do that if you have not heretofore. And for those of you that are already in Christ, you know the routine. Give thanks and live like you're giving thanks by trying to conform yourself increasingly to the life that Christ lived, who was a man and also is God. And God will give you the grace to do that. Not perfectly, but truly, if you're a Christian. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, these, for this passage. We thank you for the covenant of of grace by which you are willing and indeed eager to pardon those uh, who have rebelled against you, have, who have shaken their fists at you, and that's all of us, every last one of us, conceived and born as, conceived at least, shaking our fist at you, hating you, perhaps subtly, in ways that we don't even realize is hatred, but hating you. And yet you, Lord, are a God of grace. And through that gracious covenant that you made with Christ as the second Adam and in him with all the elect as his seed, we who are in Christ are forgiven, are loved, are heaven-bound. And no one and no thing can ever take that away. Thank you so much. Lord, would you please forgive us who are already Christians for our infidelity to you, for our violations of your covenant by our dalliances with our idols, which even as Christians we still all too often have before us. Would you please help us to dispose fully and finally of those idols. We need grace, Lord, to do that. Would you please grant us that grace? We thank you that you will because of the covenant of grace that you've made with us in Christ. And for those, if, there are any, if there's anyone watching me, Lord, that is, is not a true believer, who's perhaps even kidding himself right now into thinking, oh no, that doesn't apply to me. Show him. Show her the evil of their own hearts, the, the, what they deserve from you, which is wrath and hell. And would you please give them faith to flee to Jesus, who kept covenant in the believer's place. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.